Welcome to Lucky Boys Podcast, and I'm your host, Norm. And we have a very special guest here today, Chris Mercado, CEO and founder of Grand Answers, and also an immigrant rights advocate. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Norm. Yeah. Glad to be here. We're out in Chinatown right now, and I'm sure like everybody's going to the shops, going to the bakery. You know, you were telling me like your parents love Meiliwa, local bakery here for the cha siu bao, the pork buns. Yes, so I'm uh, a regular in Chinatown uh, for the past, what, 25, 30 years. Mm. Literally, my parents drive here every weekend just to get the coffee at Meilaiwa. Wow. Um, and Never missed a, a weekend. <laughs> probably not, unless I had to do something for, for yeah. like that, that entire weekend. They, they would you know, drive me somewhere else, but pretty much like religiously. Like it's a pilgrimage every right. weekend. Right. And it's a Filipino thing too. So yeah, it's not just I, my family. I've seen so many Filipinos like stop by, they get boxes and boxes of, of those pork buns. I mean, they're delicious. You they're know? good. Succulent. I mean, like they're my favorite pork buns in Chinatown. And I only get one or two. I never get like boxes of it, but it's for the family, right? It is. So it's a very communal thing. Uh, I actually don't like the pork buns as much as I like the special combo buns. Mm. Uh, because I love the uh, the chicken with the egg and the uh, shiitake mushroom. Whoa! Like that's different okay. flavors all in yeah. one, and it's it's like a meal, and it's cheap. Yeah, yeah, it's affordable, you yeah. know. And and I don't I don't know I can never get the the shiitake mushroom. It's not my favorite thing. It's like it's very it's very uh, aromatic. Let's just say it's an acquired taste, but it, it is. I, I like that. Um, uh, I guess all those different flavors mm. Uh, mm. all in one bite delicious yeah and I, i'm so like you know we were talking about before uh, you know i'm so uh glad that uh, there are some businesses uh still around and you know but there are businesses that have closed and it's just like you know it's just the end result of uh, the economy what's going on and and the pandemic but i'm glad that you know kind of you know summer's kind of the resurgence of of these businesses coming back that's that's true um and and for me it's you should i mean you could see some changes in chinatown even before the pandemic so it's not just the pandemic it's also uh you know evidence of uh gentrification mm. uh rents uh just being uh, unbearable for for some business owners and yeah it, it it is for me like really devastating to see businesses closing down especially because in 2013 i decided to start a business mm. and I became more sympathetic to the day-to-day behind the scenes struggles. The grind, yeah. Yeah. So that that and and managing a restaurant, um, I actually lived with a, a restaurant tour for a little while, and during the the heat of the pandemic, uh, just seeing her struggle and all the calls that she made to get PPP loans, mm. um, just the uncertainty of like, can she open up again? Uh, that was that was hard to see and trying to be there supportive for her. Um, so like kudos to all the, uh, all the entrepreneurs out there, especially the folks who literally provide us the, the food that we love. You said that you are also an entrepreneur. You started your business in 2013. And I understand that your business is, is quite unique. Um, you, you work with uh, a lot of nonprofits. Um, and I mean, I'll let you take it from there. I, I mean, like you're, you're, suppo- you're basically supporting nonprofits in pro- uh, curating and, and pro- you know, procuring talent, right? 
Yeah, so that that's a large part of what we do. So uh, in, in 2013, I had this crazy idea to start a company and it was really based on my skill set in helping uh, like black and brown mm-hmm. uh, youth ascend to college and earn about two million in scholarships and grants. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that as part of my early career at the City College of New York. That's where I graduated from. But there was this program uh, called Upward Bound. Um, and you know, I got a chance to flex my, my college access skills to help them. Mm-hmm. And in the success of that program, um, I, I started to see like the value that I, I had in terms of not just like making money for myself, but also delivering social impact. But I wasn't getting paid enough. Um, and you know, it got to the point where like, you know what, it's time for me to start something on my own. And I started Grand Answers in 2013 because I had no entrepreneurship role models in my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one around me really like taking me under their wing. I made $0 the first four months. Wow. So it, how did you support yourself during the time? Savings, right? Got so it. I had saved up uh, as much as I could um, in going up as an immigrant, uh, particularly going up as an undocumented immigrant. Mm. Uh, saving became a large part of my life. So Throughout your entire life? Yeah, so yeah. I, I had to make sure that I had something saved just in case. Mm-hmm. It was always living under these just in case circumstances Mm. and even though it wasn't much saved you know i had to find uh, some way to kind of leverage the connections that i had had to stay with uh, family uh, a little bit longer than i had wanted to but it got me to the point where okay i can figure out this entrepreneurship thing so uh, 2014 was the big break when i gave a presentation at deutsch uh, so the uh, digital agency and someone from the New York City Department of Education was there. Mm. They reached out afterwards. We love what you did. I think the, the activity that I did was I freestyled a college essay. I, what I would do is, and you know, I grew up in Hollis in Jamaica, Queens, so uh, hip hop was always was a big part of your life big part of my life yep. so this concept of freestyling was not foreign to me but I freestyled a, a, a college essay just by getting ideas from all the uh, high school students mm. uh, in the audience and the folks at the, the, at the DOE loved it um, a few months later uh, we secured uh, some funding so I would do college access programming for students in temporary housing in the Bronx. And then from then, uh, we, we worked with individual schools as well. So w- the way my business started off was, all right, we still focus on college and, and uh, college access and scholarships and grants. Part of the reason why it's called Grant Answers. Um, but you know, what, what happens when people go to college? Well, they gotta start worrying about careers. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, you know, I kept getting the requests and I was like, well, I'm gonna have to make a pivot at some point. And around late 2014, 
I had applied for this business incubator at the City College of New York. We got a runner a prize. And in that training, we got trained in lean entrepreneurship. Uh, so we learned in depth about like business model canvas and uh, how we you know, make sure we get product market fit. And that propelled me to, you know what, let's make this hard pivot into careers. And that's when we started to do work with organizations like the Knowledge House, which is based out of the South Bronx and they're diversifying tech and we help develop curriculum uh, for them. We help facilitate classes and we've helped their operational budget grow from, you know, six figures to seven figures, right? Uh, we have done work with Immigrants Rising, which is out in the Bay Area. And, you know, they, they asked us for help with a tool that they were building out that was a learning hub for entrepreneurship and careers as, as an undocumented immigrant. And we gladly, you know, helped out with that and, and leveraging our uh, product uh, and project management expertise. So right now, what Grand Answers does is social impact consulting. It's B2B and we leverage our data strategy and product expertise. So you have this like wide like uh, perspective of uh, certain communities like uh, people of color, uh, low income communities um, having small to little to no access to, to technology, to coding programs uh, and, and um, um, schooling. Uh, do you see that right now things are changing where you see more people of color uh, transitioning into these type of technology careers yes. than before? There is definitely a shift. It's definitely changing and it starts with it's easy to point to the corporate support that's coming. But what I want to bring it back to is there were a lot of like grassroots work. Mm -hmm. The Knowledge House is grassroots. I remember sneaking in other people's offices in 2013 with its co-founder and, and CEO, Geraldine Rodriguez, and we were devising uh, like what the plan would be, what this eight-year plan for the Knowledge House would be. And I started to see some of the research and some of the uh, competing, you know, let's say coding boot camps that you would see more folks of color entering tech through non-traditional means. Mm. So not college. Mm. That's, that's the whole non-traditional... Uh, like, like bypassing the standard of education and going directly to coding school exactly yeah it is cheaper mm -hmm. right it's also quicker quicker yeah so that's that's the appeal and i definitely see the tide shifting you you see these corporate investments uh you see mackenzie scott uh jeff bezos's uh ex-wife is is giving like millions of dollars to community colleges yeah that have like tech programs so it's it's I'm, I'm glad to see the change, but it's, there's so much work to do. Yeah. Oh, I mean, definitely, I, I see that. You have to equal the playing field, you know? We, we have a disproportionate amount of, of people in tech, and, you know, there are so, in tech itself, it's, it's a growing industry, right? And for me, tech isn't one industry. Everything mm. is tech. Goldman Sachs, mm. speak to them. Um, they, they call themselves a tech company. 
when you count the number of engineers that they've hired, I believe uh, in 2020, 40% of their open positions were engineering positions, not finance. Not marketing, not sales. Right. Exactly. So yeah. they, when they brand, when they are rebranding themselves as tech companies, follow where the money is mm. and follow where, that, where the hiring is because hiring is a huge cost uh, to companies and Goldman was serious about that. Yeah, and also the, with the, the, the certain, you know, this, um, the surge of cryptocurrencies. Um, I mean, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of companies now. They're they're looking for engineers, uh, people with technology backgrounds, and they're asking like, do you have backgrounds in in digital currency or cryptos, cryptocurrency? And that's interesting. You know, we're seeing that shift in finance as well. Yeah. So I I, I hate myself for uh, not getting on a crypto bandwagon oh, yeah. earlier. Um, I have some Bitcoin and Ethereum floating around, but yeah, I didn't go all in. Uh, but again, you know, growing up in a risk-averse environment where literally folks like me hid in the shadows. Mm. Um, I, I wasn't going to pile into crypto anyway. And I didn't have a whole yeah. lot of money at, at like the early beginnings of crypto yeah. anyway. I just want to touch on that because, you know, you, you said that, you know, you, you had, there was risk-averse in, in just the, the way you were growing up. And, and being careful, um, uh, saving. Where did that, um, you know, that, that mind shift change where it's like, you know, I think right now I need to change the way I'm living my life. Um, even though I have these challenges and obstacles, how did I make that m mindset change where it's like I have to do this so to get here, even with the challenges that I'm facing? So I got to give you a long answer to this. No, one. no, I want right. long answer. So this, this is so this story time for me. When I immigrated to the U.S. and moved to New York City, I was sleeping on the floor of my aunt's small apartment. Wow. Right. Yeah. It was my mom and my sister. Uh, we were sleeping on the floors. Oh, well, my mom and my sister got the couch. Yeah. So this became like an everyday this is like my, my everyday circumstances and when we moved it was to a small basement apartment in the queens if in queens if you can call it that but in the winters in that basement apartment the cellar door which is essentially our front door would freeze over so we couldn't get out we'd have to go out the uh, other way towards the the main part of the house that the landlords had and I, I grew up like that till I was, uh, you know, a teenager. And then when I was a teenager, it didn't change a whole lot. We essentially ended up moving into an attic and cramped space, no privacy, like the idea of like your own room, no AC. And, you know, that, that was just normal part of life. Yeah, at the time. That, that was life. Like it, it wasn't like I, I, I didn't go to too many friends uh, friends is like houses um, so I, I didn't have this sort of like well it doesn't have to be this way and then you know I, I sort of uh, took a lot of pride in doing well in school that was always stressed uh, by my parents to do well in school I thought that would take care of things so when I was 17 I saw my way out 
I was accepted to NYU. Dual degree program, chemical engineering, material science. I still have that acceptance letter. And I thought I was out. I can finally live in a dorm, a decent place. And I think the package was like, you know, 80K. And when they found wait, out- Wait, 80K a year? Uh, well, definitely for the first year. Um, but, so I, I, was, I, was, I was good. I was good for that first year. Um, whatever that would come up like in, in following years, my dad said, we'll find a way. Um, and when they found out I didn't have a green card, they took it away. Wow. So I, I left high school with like a 93 GPA. And I just, I just want to like back up a little bit because having almost like NYU, top of the top school, university, you know, college, that might propel you to unimaginable, uh, you know, opportunities. And just having that yanked away, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that. That must have. There, there's a, tough. yeah, there's a mini doc, uh, documentary on me, um, where I kind of express that. And like when I look at that and how I, how I speak about it, I'm almost nonchalant about it now because mm. that wasn't the first time that happened. Mm, whoa. Right? Um, it happened again four years later. I got into a PhD program, criminal justice. They gave me the biggest fellowship. It was 80K. At 21, I was going to be hired as an adjunct professor. And wow. when they Amazing. found out I didn't have a green card, they took away the fellowship. Wow. And I was like, all right, this happened again. What now? And uh, I spent you know, several years in PhD study. I left with my master's, uh, but then my mom became very ill. Mm. So I just couldn't focus on school. It, it felt like, what is this all for? I'm going to school. Like I, had, I was on track to be Dr. Chris Mercado by age 25 on track i literally only had my dissertation and one exam left and at, th at this time you were actually going to school i was, I was going to school yeah. but i was still living in at, at home that cramped attic mm -hmm. right it's it's something that still fills me with shame because no, man i don't think it's shameful at all dude you came from a cramped attic to going to university you know and you you said you were about to become a doctor PhD that's that's high aspirations I don't know anybody who I don't know anybody you know but I didn't make it out of that attic mm. until you know a few years later so that always stuck with me and again mm. for reference think back to that 17 year old I thought I was supposed to get out then right and so that that really uh developed a sense of like frustration and anger within me but I always I would always find ways to do it in a, to release it in a constructive way mm. whether it's exercising um, or like writing right mm -hmm. um, but in, in doing work and you know I, I find ways to slip through the cracks right and I did work for this after school program that, that I that I mentioned and you know I, I saw my value but I wasn't getting paid a lot. In fact, right. there were times where I didn't get paid and partly because, 
you know, the, the person in charge knew of my status. And, and they were taking advantage of it. Essentially. Wow. Yeah. So, and this happens a lot with undocumented mm-hmm. immigrants. Like, who do we go to? Right. Because right? then if, if we try to, you know, raise the red flag, we're, we're the ones that, that are going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're reinforced to, you know, keep quiet. And it, growing up in an Asian household, typical Asian household, you're already quiet. And then you, you uh, multiply that with uh, undocumented status for, like a, for, for years, for decades. Then you've been trained to be quiet. And I just got sick of it in mm. like 2012, 2013. I was like, I have nothing left to lose. So that is my, there was no one particular moment except that in my head, it became, what else do I have left to lose? Mm. And I think that is the moment of truth that people should look out for. When you feel like you have nothing left to lose, you are sometimes the most dangerous, but also that might be the most powerful part. When I speak to other immigrants and you you sense the despair, they go to these moments, but they'll perceive it as, what can I do? Right. And for me, I'm like, there's got to be something within you. Like, don't look outside, look within. Mm-hmm. Right? Be introspective about what you can try to leverage, what resources you might have. Because when you think about it, if you're going through the same path that got you to a place, and it's not bringing you security forget happiness security right being stable exactly if it's not bringing you that then essentially you have nothing left to lose so go ahead and and try that venture go ahead and make that outreach try to make that connection that's that's very inspiring um when you talk about how you got from you know essentially point a to point b to c to d right and it's still it's still an upward climb. Um, how how did you when you talk to people in in the same situation, and they're saying there's no other option? Um, because from what you're saying to me, I, I hear that you know you utilized the skills that you have. You know you used your voice. Some people don't have uh, a certain ability, and they have to you know they're great writers, and they have to go into that. Like what? advice that you give to people that you work with, um, usually people of color, low income communities, how do you advise them that there's other options? So one, I framed it in a very individualistic way. So a lot of um, cultures are very communal and that has great positives too. But what that sometimes does is force individuals to take on traditions that they don't even like. They had no part in creating. And for me, and this might be an, you know, a bias in growing up in an individualistic society uh, here in the US, but I don't want individual power to be diminished. Hmm. Even if that means breaking away from cultural Norms. communal yeah. traditions mm. as a filipino 
I'm supposed to be a nurse. Or in the medical field or. Right. Right. You know, lawyer, engineer, mm-hmm. doctor, mm-hmm. right? If not that, you're supposed to be a nurse. To this day, my, my parents probably don't know what I do. Right? <laughs> right, right. Right. They just know that sometimes I'll give them chunks of money. Right. And, you know, he doesn't live here anymore. Mm. He doesn't live with us anymore. Mm. So, you know, for me, I think it's breaking away from that. And, you know, some people may not be comfortable with that. They, oh, I, I just know a lot of people who are not, you know, certain generations. But I think our generation, um, future generations, younger kids, um, gen, you know, Gen Y, Gen Z, they have a different outlook in life. They definitely see that, you know, they don't have to follow a certain blueprint that their parents kind of laid out for them. Or even advice, you know, they don't have to take it. And right now, you don't even have to go to school. You don't have to go to university to, to make a lot of money. You know, you go, you know, go, go to a coding academy or, or, you know, open a, you know, a restaurant, be a restaurateur. You know, there's so many different avenues now. You're not spending so much money on education. But, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, there is no norm right now for the future generation. But in terms of, of you, you know, you're, you're saying, like, you, you broke, broke out of it. And how did that, I mean, how did that, uh, how did you, what did your parents say? I was also forced into breaking out of it. Mm. Because I knew I didn't have the papers to be able to work as a nurse. Yeah, yeah. They already knew that my dreams of becoming an engineer were essentially dead because my scholarship money was taken away. I, it was too late for me to enter a, a, an engineering program. I chose my college randomly from a book. I didn't know it was like 90 minutes away and I would have to make these like 90 minute, two hour commutes Ooh. on the train. I didn't know that. And then like psych, I was like, oh, well, I, I, I took an AP class in high school. So I, I liked it. And that's the only one of the few things still, still open. So, cause it was like, it was like July. My friends had already moved to their dorms and you know, I was like, I'm stuck with this. And this idea of like being stuck with something. So on one, one end, you know, it's the restriction of, of freedom, right? But because I knew I didn't have those options, I had to dig really deep into, well, what am I good at? Well, I was actually good at getting to school, getting scholarships. Why can't I translate that to others who may not look like me, right? But they lived like me. And mm-hmm. I grew up in one of the rougher areas of Queens. Mm-hmm. So I, it's easy for me to work with like black and Latino youth because I grew up in a predominantly like black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So there's a relatability there. And I think one of my strengths is that I may not look like you, but trust me, I can find ways to relate. Right. And once I hone in on that, it opens up the gateway to like this connection. So one of the biggest pieces of advice that I have with uh, career talent is the way you tell your story is going to affect not just how an interviewer perceives you, how a company perceives you, but how you perceive yourself. Mm. And once you start perceiving yourself in a more powerful way 
it will shine through in an interview. Uh, in a, it could be a phone screening. It shines through. So in some of the career classes that I facilitate, in some of the presentations, whether it's at the University of Texas uh, or if it's locally with the Knowledge House, I make it really clear that I don't teach career. I teach power. You can go to a bunch of career sites. You go to LinkedIn, Indeed, whatever, and get all the you know, career advice that you want. But if you can't frame it in a way that ties into your story that's centered on power, others won't perceive you as the powerful person that you really are. Oh, wow. That's a great tagline. Is that the tagline for Grand, uh, grand, grand Answers? No. But <laughs> that's, I, I, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I mean, like, I, I'm truly inspired by, you know, the, the fact that, you know, you're helping the, uh, these people to, to gain access to something that they might not have understood as an opportunity. But it's because I didn't have the access. Mm. It's literally, and I've, I've said this in a keynote speech for Teach for America. The work that I do, the work that Grand Answers does, is literally my way of getting revenge on the systems that cut me off of opportunities. Mm. So when, when we talk about systematic oppression, I felt it from the undocumented and failed government policy lens. And these systems like have, have cut off prime earning years for me. Uh, my ability to like raise a family when I had wanted to mm-hmm. um, or like live just decently, not great, just decently. And I will never let that go but I also won't let it consume me to the point where it destroys me. I use it as fuel, as, as motivation. Right, as an advocate yeah. to change laws to protect uh, people in your situation. But there's also people on the other side saying like, you know, there's going to be debate and, and, and people are going to say like, you didn't come here, you know, in the right way. You know, why should you have these opportunities? That's fair mm-hmm. right um i also think that that is devoid of empathy mm-hmm. and from my story in particular fine you want me to come the right way what are you going to tell the six-year-old kid right so are you going to tell him like don't listen to your parents just stay back in the philippines and, and like wait mm-hmm. like is that does that make sense mm-hmm. when kamala harris recently was at the border and made the proclamation to the world. And she said, don't come. Don't come. come. Yeah. Right? Mm. And as a business leader, I understand who she's protecting. I understand that it has, uh, the U.S. sees this as a problem and doesn't want a greater influx. And... The other side of me is also, I want all immigrants to totally not care about that because they're fleeing death, violence, abject poverty. Don't listen to what Kamala has to say on that. Like, you're going to look out for your family. It's, it's literally instinctual. It's, it's evolutionary. 
Like we're gonna look out for our family, and if this means crossing like dangerous waters, paying like really, really awful people money to carry us across like terrain, they're gonna find ways to do it. Then and then it's 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 and it's so strange to to see too. The reason, I mean, there's a reasoning behind why they want to go through this entire process to get to the U.S. There's got to be something worse over there, or what's happening to them, for wherever they're they're coming from. Folks literally did a risk reward calculation, right? And they said, "I'd rather risk my life crossing these treacherous waters or treacherous terrain than to live where I currently live."、Mm. They made that choice. They're they're willing to risk their life. Exactly, because it would be worse there. And I think when people say, you know, why don't you just wait in line? Like, one that's devoid of that that empathy of that understanding of how much suffering there is outside of this country, and we already have tons of suffering in this country. And the other thing too is, you know, these lines aren't like miles long; they're decades long. For countries like Jamaica, Mexico, and the Philippines, that line is decades long, right? And wh- what do you want folks to do?、Um, totally like pause their their lives and like or give up? Like you you wouldn't want that for your own family. That doesn't make any sense. And、uh, where where I think that there's middle ground here is actually on the economic front. So I've presented at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce、uh, back in 2016, where you know I was pretty visible、uh, in 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 the uh, immigrant rights uh, activist uh, field, and you know that that tends to be a very conservative space, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. But when you think about the immigrant entrepreneurs and how they contribute. It actually pulls in both Democrat and Republican in a really good way. So, you know that that's always been the hope that that economic,、um, like that benefit, that economic benefit that immigrants provide, will help with the overall、uh, feeling towards、uh, giving,、um, you know, undocumented immigrants a path to. You know citizenship.、Mm-hmm. So、uh, earlier this year,、uh, the Dream and Promise Act was passed by the House.、Uh, so we'll see where that goes.、Um, It still has to go through the Senate, right? Exactly.、Um, but you know, it's it's usually this this like economic value that that helps with the 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 discourse between you know opposing parties and. You know, when when we think about you know tax season, you know it was extended this year, like filing deadlines. But back in 2017,、uh, about 20 28 billion dollars was paid by undocumented immigrants, and about 10 10 billion of that went to state and, and local funds. So when you're enjoying your public schools,、uh, just know that. You know, some undocumented immigrants were responsible for that, 
and they can't even get the benefit of what their taxes pay for, like unemployment benefits. So you're welcome, America. So undocumented immigrants are paying these taxes, yet they are they, they can't um, they can't fully access benefit. the rewards of of paying those taxes. Exactly. Wow. So as a citizen, you're, you're there's pay- a balance. Yeah, get, right. You know. So you're paying for stuff that you, you get out. So you know, Social Security, uh, your public schools, right? It's 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 not of concern um, if you're a citizen, but for undocumented immigrants, we're paying all of this, we're paying mm-hmm. the same things that you all do, property taxes. Mm-hmm. But oh, well, property taxes are killing me, killing me. But but we don't we don't get the same benefits. Right. So wow, how That's, fair how fair is that? So the, so the challenge is, is how do you find the middle ground where you can create a, a path to citizenship for undocumented uh, immigrants? So I think the middle ground, uh, the way the, a lot of the uh, discourse is, is played out is, is the economic value, mm-hmm. right? So that's when you get the support of corporate America. Um, there's been a large focus on DACA recipients. So... Uh, folks who were of a certain age came here of a certain age and were given uh, through o- Obama's execu- executive order were given uh, temporary work authorization that they have to renew um, and uh, protection from deportation right mm. so you know I, I think focusing on generally what would be younger dreamers and the economic value is what is this middle ground but that excludes so many people it it excludes a lot of folks who just like other american citizens maybe may not be able to work maybe they're disabled what do you do like again do you throw people away Mm -hmm. what kind of country do you want to be if you're just gonna throw people away right right so yeah we're i mean like we live in a world well in, in 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 this you know in, in this society we're, we're considered a first world country right and so i mean where do we how do we want to treat our citizens right how do we want to treat our people our fellow you know man and woman like um it, i think it's a challenge um it's but you know with with people that are you know advocating and, and pushing for for certain laws to, to change that's i think that's the key yeah uh so i have a lot of friends who work behind the scenes that do incredible work. I have friends who go to the borders and have gone to detention camps to report on and, and keep track of like how people are being treated. Families are still separated. Just because Trump isn't in office yeah. uh, doesn't mean like the problems went away. So like there's so much that needs to be undone. And then when when you talk about again like the right way the backlog that's still going on in processing uh like visa papers like that's it's never ending so and and taxpayer money pays for those employees Mm -hmm. right so there's so many things that need to be fixed as long as we're going in the right direction like that's that's great and i think um having a new administration is a step in that right direction. Do you think um, in, I guess, in our lifetimes, you know, we'll be able to see some sort of 
um, I don't want to say resolution because I, f- I feel like this is always going to evolve. Like comprehensive immigration reform? Right, right. I've heard that talked about since 2000. Mm. It's almost tw- it's 21 years ago. Right. A filibuster killed the DREAM Act in 2010. Mm-hmm. And again, the DREAM and Promise Act. Um, so nice move by the House. But again, we don't know where that's going. But that doesn't encompass everyone. One of the biggest reasons I became very vocal in that 2014, 2015, 2016 period is because a lot of the folks who did not qualify for DECA or TPS were being left out. And in 2016, there was a Supreme Court case, US v. Texas, that could have expanded DECA to help five million more people and i was happy to do that i was happy to expose myself because if my story can just nudge enough people maybe it penetrates the walls of the supreme court so that we can get a win Mm -hmm. glad to do it it was a tie because at that time it was there were only eight just justices right four four and a tie was a loss wow so one vote short yeah of an extra five million people being able to live in a way where they have more access there's like more dignity towards them mm-hmm. and i was one of those people and and the people that you know this piece of legislation is protecting is it could be your your doctor it could be like people who are in these in these uh professions that are helping people your teachers your right. neighbors your classmates mm-hmm. one vote short wow and when we talk about again the net economic value you have like the chief actuary of the IR, of the IRS saying, you know what, net benefit it's a plus, right? Yeah. Right. So like, there's in terms of economics, it'll yeah, be a net benefit. Exactly, yeah. and then not to mention just the actual decency yeah. for for people. So, uh, I, I but people people in this in this world we're looking at it's you know it's based on capitalism. So they're always looking at like is this is this good for the economy? Is this good for are we made? You know, are we making money? You know, are you know money talks? The facts clearly say yes. Mm -hmm. So, what else is getting in the way? Oh, it's it's your bigotry, it's your hatred, uh, it's your racism. Biases. Yeah, that's that's clearly what's it because the facts are pretty clear. Mm -hmm. And we 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 do see this in in, in a lot of different roles. I mean, we see in government where you know we had the um, the Asian hate uh, bill. I believe that was that was passed, but you had it wasn't unanimously passed. It was there were some some people who didn't you know agree with just acknowledging that okay, Asian hate's a thing. I, I forget the exact number, but I thought that I think was, it was like five or six. Yeah, I was number. like, that's really ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah, it it is. Well, it it just goes to show why we do have to speak up more, and as you know, creators uh, who are Asian. Um, it's really important that our voices are projected 
and heard by people who typically don't hear us. And uh, I'm just curious, like, in terms of your work with uh, immigration rights, did that ever come up where, you know, it kind of bled in to what's happening with the Asian community, with the attacks and everything? Right. So there's almost two million Asian undocumented immigrants. Two million. Wow. You can go to... Just uh, in New York or just worldwide? No. I mean, uh, not worldwide, but in the U.S. Yeah. So... You can go to aapidata.org, uh, I think it's .org, and you'll, you'll see the, the stats there, but there's, uh, I believe, 1.7 million, right? That means, and overall, and you go to Brookings or like the Migration Policy Institute, there's about 11.5 million uh, undocumented folks. So there's a substantial percentage of undocumented immigrants who are Asian, right? Yeah, close to 20%, right? A uh, little bit less, yes, yeah. right? And then uh, in New York, um, uh, I believe like the American Immigration Council would estimate you know, over 700,000 uh, undocumented folks in, in New York. But when you see th- how undocumented immigration is talked about, you'll have this Texas, California focus. You'll have the Latino focus, but even deeper than that, it's a Mexican focus. And that means that AAPI voices get left out. Mm. Black undocumented folks get left out. Even white undocumented folks get left out. Mm. And what happens is when you leave people out in just the mere discussion of it, it becomes harder to, to get broad-based co- coalitions to push for, right? And it's already hard because it is so easy to be anti-immigrant. You just hate everybody. But to be for something is so much harder like how, how, how undocumented are you talking about? Is it gonna be just for DACA folks? Uh, or is it gonna be like for all undocumented folks, right? And then you'll have people who don't agree on certain things on the for immigrant side. So it's always easy to be anti, but to be for, that's when these deep discussions need to be explored and then the intersections with racism need to be explored. Yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's so many moving pieces when it comes to immigration. But I, I just wanna switch gears a little bit um, towards you know our, our conversation about um, talking about Asian hate and how it's affected like just, uh, you know, just maybe your neighborhood or, you know, you said that, you know, you were, you, you and your family were coming here to Chinatown on a regular, you know, experiencing like, uh, you know, the food, the culture and everything like that and then all of a sudden you start hearing all these stories about you know attacks and not just in in chinatowns but also in like different areas of new york city and uh on the west coast as well it's not new to me so the stories of like vincent chin Mm -hmm. right um i've read about but i grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood and i stood out 
also one of the smallest and always one of the youngest in the circles that I would go around. I remember uh, walking to school, I would see crack vials still, right? But I've been held at knife point to my neck behind a church that I used to go to, mm. right? You don't know if it's just playing or if it's serious. Mm. Um, you know, I've been bullied um, and I had this weird dynamic where I went to predominantly white and Asian schools as I got towards like high school but I used to still live in a predominantly black neighborhood. So like fitting in was like really hard. And I, I, it, it, the sense of identity like was, was really hard for me to, to grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the context of how I look at like stop Asian hate. The first big thing was I hope the able-bodied would punch people back in the face. Like, I thought back to me as a little kid mm. being bullied as like one of the few Asian ones, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I had the power to fight back. Although I, I did in a lot of ways, and, but, it, but I never felt like I could overpower. Mm. So when I saw the videos most recently, my first instinct is like, again, for the able-bodied ones, right? Why didn't you hit him back? Mm. Why didn't you like tear their head off? Because that would have been the reaction that I had. Because mm. uh, I've had that reaction before of people who picked on me. Right, right. Um, and essentially, we, you know, these are bullies, right? Yeah. And then I've been bullied when I was younger, but, you know, because I felt the exact same way where... You know, I didn't. I didn't feel like I had the power to over uh, overpower uh, the assailant, but now it's kind of different. Where I've been, I've I've been going to the gym for like five years, ten plus years. I, I, that's a huge you know time for difference, but more consistently in the recent years. Um, but just I'm a different person now than when I, when I was younger, and I know that I can I can protect myself and protect people who who cannot protect themselves. But there's also that fear that, you know, you're risking your life for, for a stranger. You're right. And that's a good point. But at that moment, I see someone taking my life. And I have seen systems take my life. Mm-hmm. And all of that anger is inside of me, mm-hmm. right? And I, I know this for sure because someone tried to jump. Well, no, not someone. Three people jumped me. Uh, when I was going home in my cramped attic Mm. late at night and they came at me from behind. I knew something was up. So I made some noise, but I fought them off. Mm. But instead of like going to run for help, I chased them down. And They were were running away from you. Yeah, I literally took, I I picked up whatever I could see and I chased them down for a few blocks because I wanted to destroy them. Mm. And I don't know if, if it means like having to have experienced so much loss and like disappointment. Um, but when I saw those videos, I kept thinking of the times where I've been attacked 
and, and, and the time when you fought back and, and fought back and i'm like go get him like you're you're it looks like you're able-bodied enough mm. go get him and teach this person a lesson but also teach others a lesson and maybe assert that power that we've seen stripped away from the asian community like for far too long and then I'll, I'll peel back on a more macro level view of stop Asian hate. In a lot of my work in tech, Asians, the AAPI community is overrepresented in all aspects of technology, hmm. except for one. Is it, when you're saying uh, overrepresented in tech, are you talking about uh, being employed, a, a, Asian, being employed, right? Asians here in the U.S. or Asians uh, from abroad? So because there's a lot of uh, that, Asian people in tech, but a lot of it's outsourced. And that's a good point. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to talk about this country, right? But they're over overrepresented in in tech, mm. right? Except for one general area: leadership roles. They don't mm. ascend to management roles. C level. Yeah, mm. they're not in the C suites. Go through a big company websites, go through the uh, the board of directors, go through the C-suites, and you won't find the same proportion. So for me, that there's some un underlying uh, hatred towards the AAP, uh, AAPI community when you can be overrepresented in entire industries on the lower levels but no like you can't ascend this high the upper echelon yeah do you think because that's interesting that you say that because a lot of tech companies are actually founded by asian uh asian people um like yahoo like youtube these tech companies were co-founded or founded by um asian people and i'm just curious like what do you think about that that you know, we have founders that are Asian, but then C-level, let's say like in sales or, or marketing, we don't see those that representation. So I think that those are going to be the extreme cases, right? And we... Oh, so the, they're outliers usually. We, we tend to celebrate the extreme cases. Mm -hmm. I'm more concerned about, well, most people. That would be the middle, right? If you look at a typical bell curve, right? So we tend to uh, create policies for the extremes. We celebrate the extremes. But no, I want more black and Latino talent in tech, right? So let's get more of that representation. Uh, I want more AAPI folks to ascend to leadership roles. So where are your executive mentoring programs? Where's your management training programs mm -hmm. for the, the folks who are already there? And yeah, it's, it's great that we have representation. Uh, I remember this tweet that had this long list of AAPI uh, founders. Uh, that's great. That's also the exception. Oh, that was like the argument to uh, not seeing uh, Asian representation in the, the C-level. And basically, okay, here, here's a list of all these uh, founders and you know, you know, technologists out there. Yeah, like it, that, that's... And, and a lot of founders, you know, do like end up exiting, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't have that day-to-day -day, uh, responsibilities to, to sort of oversee how the rest of the company operates. But yeah, we can't just look at 
it can't be like founders and then like entry level. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of room in between. And the more we have leadership that represents what c- the country looks like, so Latinos, Hispanic Latinos might be the largest uh, ethnic group, uh, but Asians, AAPI folks are the fastest growing. So, you know, one, one measure of justice is proportionality. It's not the perfect one, but if you have, you know, about like 10 fo- uh, 10% of folks in the U.S. are AAPI, then shouldn't there be 10 fo- uh, 10% of folks in senior level positions who are AAPI? Mm. That's one measure of of uh, justice and equity proportion. It's interesting that you know we have res- represent certain representation in, in certain industries, and it goes the same with like um, in the media industry, where you know you have all these. It looks like there's so many Asian-led films, movies, uh, centric uh, films coming out, but yet. Do we see the representation behind the curtain? Like, like we're talking about directors, producers, filmmakers. Um, I don't. I don't think we do. I mean, there is a disproportion there in the media space as well. So, Fast Nine came out. Uh, in the Heights came out. So there's oh, In the Heights. A, a, yeah, Asian. Awesome movie. Yeah. So Asian. I was more proud and more and more excited that In the Heights came out than uh, my wife, who's Dominican. <laughs> And I was like, that's weird. But then she also said that, you know, it doesn't kind of represent the heights. I was like, okay, well, it's a musical. What do you expect? You know, it's supposed to be like kind of glammed up, <laughs> you know? So as, as someone who lived right by Washington Heights and I have a lot of friends in Washington Heights, those critiques are fair. Or valid, I think, right? yeah. Th- they're fair. Yeah. But if the net takeaway isn't a celebration, then I think, you know. Right, right. It feels unfair, but Fast Nine and and uh, In the Heights, Asian directors, right? True, yeah. And and that's that's great to have uh, representation behind the screen. I'm actually more concerned about representation in front of the screen. I remember Ooh. about ten years ago that my there was this professor at City College who said that the really first and only hyper-masculine, sexualized Asian man in the U.S. is Bruce Lee. And that's it. And who else came after to take that mantle of superstar, hyper-sexualized Asian man? Because those are the leading men that are celebrated in American culture. But it, it was only Bruce Lee. Like, who else do we have after? I'll take it back to Romeo Must Die. So, Jet Li, Aaliyah, mm. huge R&B fan. So, I was a fan of Aaliyah's. I was... I was super s- s- excited to see that movie. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> and... and uh, Jet Li just seeing an Asian man on screen mm. lead. So in reading the backstory on that, there was a scene where they kissed and it never made it. They because, actually shot the scene. 
of them kissing. Because when it was tested, the crowd did not react well to it. So it never made it on screen. Mm. I can't help but think of what that could have done to Asian men in Hollywood, mm. right? But that was taken out. That's, wow, that's, there's a lot to unpack there because from what I understand from just statistics and just reading in terms of data on dating sites, that Asian men and black, black women, women were the least desirable. Yes. And I find that interesting that the, they cut that scene out, you know? Well, at the time, dating sites weren't. Oh, yeah, right. The they weren't, you know, they weren't you know, prevalent there. Then. Yeah. Yeah. But I just see it as a missed opportunity for an Asian man to, again, be in this, tr what's traditionally seen as like a, a position of power. Right. Like being the, not just the lead, not the action lead, but also the romantic lead. Mm. That's different, mm -hmm. right? That's when you'll start to, I guess, get near like Bruce Lee status, but we haven't had that. And that's what I'm looking for. Like, I know, you know, we've seen Crazy Rich Asians, uh, but that, that's not enough. So you're saying that we need more representation in front of the screen. I think in, in front is the, is the problem. The more, more than behind the scenes. That's interesting because I see it as the more representation we have behind the scenes, like writers and directors and producers, that's when you get the creation of more representation in front of. I, I, so I see that too, yeah. right? That would be the logical way. Hmm. I'm a little impatient here. <laughs> Hurry up and get some like Asian male leads out there. And then I'm I, I, I get that. Yeah. But then that's when you, you come across with like caricatures. That's, that's true. Because so, you have like, you know, people who are, you know, voice, you know, using, you know, basically their voices and our faces and they're not, they're not a true representation or, or a six, you know, it's, it's not a, a holistic representation of, uh, of an Asian person. That is totally fair. And I'm probably advocating for this shortcut that may not be good yeah. uh, in, in the long run, but it, it sort of feels like there needs to be this moment where, uh, do you remember the Latin explosion of like the early 2000s? The Latin explosion, no. Uh, Ricky Martin, J-Lo. Yeah. yeah, 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 okay. That, that pop culture, right, right, dominated American culture. True. Where's that moment for Asians? That's mm. what I'm seeking towards. The dominating uh, period Yeah. for, for Asian Americans. Yeah. I, I think it's still evolving. I think, I think when like all these movies coming out, um, Snake Eyes, Shang-Chi, people are talking that, oh, wow, they, they have all these movies coming out. Um, even though you know there are criticisms because of it's a kung fu movie, it's a martial arts movie, you know, it's stereotypical, whatever the case may be. But it seems like these are more of a, like a well-crafted, well-rounded representation, uh, story-based uh, Asian stories, and have Asian leads. Olivia Rodrigo, beautiful, talented, also part Filipino. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. Exactly. Wow right yeah her right who is one of my favorite artists extremely talented multi grammys not even 24 i believe mm. right black and filipino 
And I... Oh, who? Her? Her. Her, okay. Right. And, you know, seeing them ascend brings a sense of pride. Mm. It also, again, makes, makes it clear that represent, representation does matter. What's the... Uh, I mean, BTS is a, a different element, right? Um, but as far as, like, getting the hold of American pop culture... Where's the Asian man corollary to mm. to uh, you know like the Aquafinas uh, right. of of the world, right? Right. So that's that's what I'm hoping for, and then I hope we do get this like Asian explosion, mm. just like the land explosion happened in the, the early two thousand. I think it's still happening. The land explosion. I, I think it's, like, it's a resurgence. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a resurgence, but that late nineties, early two thousands. Like I, you you couldn't escape Ricky Martin or like J Lo, like. Right. That's that's true. That's true. I'm. I mean, like, you know, I'm optimistic. I think um, this this year. I think I don't know this this year. I feel like there's there's gonna be some some uh, some great things coming out from the Asian community. I think there there always has been. Yeah. It's well, the Lucky Boys podcast, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. So. It is great to see Asian creators. I want them amplified by folks who aren't Asian. Mm. I've spent a career literally amplifying black and Latino talent, uh, whether it's tech or like just uh, talent and going to uh, colleges and, and universities. And I, I, I want that in return. Like I'm not expecting that in return, but I want the country to amplify and, and celebrate Asians beyond like the typical the stereotypical mm. things right and like the the business leaders the content creators like the more we get that amplified the better and then we'll, we'll you know hopefully get that moment of, of time where it's an asian explosion in the u.s and i i think that the perfect time is if it if it's no other time this is the it's perfect not. time you know the fact that you know people are are coming out to protest. The people are, you know, amplifying their own voices, doing their own thing, either through rallies, protests, um, marathon runs, raising money for the community, or uh, or creating content, or even helping like in the community of low income communities ascend to, um, you know, a certain a certain industry. It all I think it all adds up to a certain point where. There's going to be a massive surgence of representation. Yeah, so that that's also you know I, I started something called the Risk Reward Show with my colleague. He's black. He's from Brooklyn, but we're all oh, what part of Brooklyn? He's, I'm from he, Bensonhurst. He's it? No, he's he's further like around Flatbush. East Flatbush. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And you know we got on a phone one day and we started. to to talk about representation, you know, we'll see, you know, we're not gonna do like the TikTok dances and, and that kind of content creation, but we have these insights for careers, particularly around tech, and we decided to do it uh, very intentionally as there's black and Asian allyship. Mm -hmm. And it's talking about tech careers, so generally our audience is gonna be young professionals. So, we, in that one conversation, we were like, risk reward show. And I play Mr. Risk. 
he plays Mr. Reward. And, and what we do is like we help people find the upside in their professional lives because that's the nature of our work. But also it's the nature of our struggles, right? He had his own like journey. I have my own. We intersect because, you know, we, we serve like some of the same organizations. We also went to the same college just at different times. And I think now is also a good time to highlight allyship across communities that sometimes didn't get along really well. Right. There, there weren't communication between these two communities. And at this time, you know, and we talk about this all the time on the show. You know, we might have uh, deferring uh, ideas and conversations and we debate, but we understand there's more that connects us than divides us. And we always, we push this because, you know, if you want to go far, you go together. You're not going to go far just yourself, you know. And, you know, I think um, what you're doing is amplifying and, and creating that space, a, a safe space, so that those conversations can, can happen, right? As, same here on the podcast. I, I appreciate that. And, it's, and when you say, like, what you're doing, for me, I can't separate the immigrant story immigrant rights advocacy with my business at Grand Answers, I can't really separate that because I don't start a company if I had my papers when I was young. I would have no need. I would be an engineer and- Boring. No. <laughs> life would be boring and mm. sometimes boring is welcome mm. because oh, yes. I remember the, the crazy times where like I had no place to live really, mm. right? And like no one really had the resources to be able to help me out. I just had to rely on like, let me, let me get through another day so that I can finally find a way to figure things out. Mm. But status, immigration status ultimately is why I ended up starting a company um, and that company has found some work in helping immigrant communities, regardless of status. It's found work in helping low-income black and brown talent go into tech and helping college students in general, like explore career possibilities because that all ties into my experience of having career opportunities cut short when I was younger and growing up in Hollis and Jamaica, Queens and being around black and brown folk for most of my life. Yet, you know, sometimes going to uh, Asian or Filipino parties where I would hear anti-black things being mm -hmm. said. And I'm like, wait, they're saying that about my friends. Mm -hmm. Right. And having to navigate these in a way where I can process them in a way where I'm not too resentful of folks. I can understand why Kamala would say don't come while knowing that it's still wrong. Like for me, that that perspective is something that I would refer to as a, as a superpower. Like I can understand various perspectives mm. without going from zero to 60 on, on like yelling at them. Right. 
and uh, I, I I take pride in having that uh, ability to be open to ideas that may even be hurtful to me, but you can't fix it any other way. Well, I feel like those are also teaching moments. Like those are moments where you know, hey, wait, have you have you hung out with yeah. black, brown, Latinos before? If not, then let me let me educate you um, because some of them are my really close friends, and these are how are these people? You know, my friends are. You know, it's it's. I I see them as a teaching moments, but there are going to be moments there where people, you know, they they're gonna they're gonna have their own uh, prejudices, uh, perspectives, and those are times where you can really help them understand. They are absolutely teachable moments and I think that every every day I'm running my business what can I teach others it could be the the orgs that we help the leadership at the orgs that we help uh, or like the individual you know people it could be tech talent it could be college students like what could we teach them that will again drive home this idea of Power and how they can reframe their stories, their skill sets to maximize that feeling of power that they feel so that when they deliver on a project, an initiative, on an, on an interview, the person or the people or the company that's judging them can feel all that power that this particular individual has and again I, I don't want anyone to feel less than how they how powerful they, they truly are wow Chris thank you for you know sharing your story um, it's been you know you're I, I, I think personally I think you're very brave to to be able to op be open and share your life story um, I, I think it's gonna help a lot of people um, people who you know you just don't know who you can touch but just say you know speaking your story um any final words any projects you, you're going to be working on that you want to share grand answers is going to celebrate its eighth anniversary next month awesome and we're gonna do it by moving moving so that's uh i'll, I'll keep the audience suspense but we are moving hqs and we are it's looking like we're going to do some work out in uh in california so we're actually filing uh to also be an llc in, wow in so california. two offices one in the east coast and uh, one in the west I, coast i'm definitely not ready to start a uh, california office right mm -hmm. now uh but we're gonna do some some work in california pretty soon it looks like and some of our biggest work is coming up this summer where, you know, in our work with the Knowledge House, the Knowledge House has gotten funding from the likes of Goldman Sachs Foundation, NBA Foundation, and it, it has expanded to Atlanta, Newark, and Los Angeles. Amazing. So we are developing curricula. We are helping to train the next generation of tech talent that's going to be at the Knowledge House, but it's going to be... Uh, nationwide so we're looking forward to that and again you know we're, we're, we're focused on social impact so that's what we do and then you know we'll, we'll talk about the the journeys through the risk reward show with uh, myself and my co-host Derek and 
Yeah, yeah. Share, share the share the link to to the show. Um, we, we can share it on our sure. Yeah, you know, podcast. I'm, as well. I'm, tr- I'm trying to follow in your footsteps as uh, content creators. So uh, this for me, you're talking about teachable uh, moments. This was a learning experience for me as well. So thank you for for having me. Great conversation. Thank you. Lucky boys out. Thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts for the rest of our episodes.